0: The following sermon was preached on July 11th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled A Solemn Commandment on 1 Timothy 6, 13-16. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, some of you will remember uh, when Frodo and the other eight in the Fellowship of the Rings uh, embarked on their journey. Uh, when they left uh, uh, the first city, uh, Bilbo gave Frodo a very special sword and a wonderful male vest to protect him. When they got to Lorien, uh, the elves there gave them the, that food that was called lembas that would last forever and you could go a whole day's journey on a few bites of it. Gave them a special camouflage clothing so they couldn't be seen. And when they left, Gadriel gave each of them a special gift. Many of those gifts enabled uh, Frodo and the companions to complete this almost impossible quest the God uh, that was set before them. Well, our quest is, in a sense, at least in one way, more impossible. Paul has just said that we are to, uh, to flee lust, to pursue steadfastly after virtue, to, to contend for the faith. We're to press on regardless of opposition and persecution. Uh, we're to press on uh, in, in spite of all uh, difficulties and frailty and, and opposition. Uh, but God does not expect us to go on our own strength. He's done more than give us gifts to help us in our pilgrimage, and in our fight. He himself is with us. He guarantees the outcome. Now that's what Paul is showing us in our text this morning, which is 1 Timothy six thirteen through 16. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testifies the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So even as um, in this section, we're beginning in verse 3, where Paul is instructing Timothy these last words, how he is to conduct his ministry, what he is to teach to others. Um, he's once again set before him uh, the false teachers, uh, their false motivation, uh, which was greed. He tells him to flee from those things, pursue the, the six virtues that are laid out for us, to fight the good fight, taking hold of eternal life. Um, it's in light of that that he gives this solemn charge now to uh, to Timothy and and what I want to show you is with an eye on the return of Christ and the encouragement of the triune God we are solemnly commanded to obey God carefully in all things with an eye on the return of Christ and the encouragement of the holy triune God we are solemnly commanded to obey God carefully In all things, we're going to look at a solemn charge, a summary commandment, and a gracious encouragement. A solemn charge, a summary commandment, and a gracious uh, encouragement. Well, we have this commandment that Paul gives to us in verse um, 14, prefaced with a solemn charge in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate." Perhaps you recognize this this language of this charge. It is uh, Paul's placing Timothy under an oath. He's placing them under a very solemn obligation to do exactly that which God is commanding Timothy through the Apostle Paul. Paul uses this phrase or similar phrases four times in First and 2 Timothy. We saw it the first time back in chapter 5 where he charged Timothy in sight of God and elect angels. Uh, we have it here. Uh, we also have Paul giving it to the congregation uh, in chapter 2 or telling Timothy to do that. And then the glorious one in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy 2 to preach the word of God. It is the most solemn adoration, uh, charge, commandment that uh, an apostle could give. It comes with great apostolic authority. It comes with uh, no provision for any kind of wiggle room to avoid the charge. So the commandment that he's going to move to in verse 14 is prefaced by this solemn charge by which the apostle calls Timothy and each of us before the presence of God. What the other writer's called quorum Deo, we live our lives before God. You'll notice that he refers to God the Father and God the Son. When, uh, in the Bible, when you have the, the term God and one of the other persons that God had mentioned, you are to think of the Father. And so he says, I charge you in the presence of God, the Father who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testifies the good confession. Now basically... He's reminding us that God, in whose presence we live, sees everything that we do, knows every word that we speak, and knows every thought, as we see, for example, in Psalm 139, that we think. Not only does God know these things, but this becomes a solemn uh, obligation because we're going to answer to God for every single thing. We who are in the ministry are preparing for the ministry. We're going to answer to God for every aspect of our conduct in the ministry, how we spend our time, how we deal with the truth, how diligently we prepare, and how we cultivate the flock of God. But all of us live in the presence of God, and we're all going to give an answer. That's why he sets before us uh, Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus, his name is God incarnate equal with the Father and the Spirit. Christ, the anointed Savior of God. But when he sets Christ before us in this way, you understand that he is reminding us, as we've already seen, that Christ Jesus, who is our Savior, is coming to be the judge of all people. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed, rewarded, for his deeds in the body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. So not only that God sees all, knows all, he's making a record of all. And when Christ returns as judge, all are going to give an answer to him for all. Now, this doesn't mean that our our final salvation is waiting for that day and we stand there with bated breath. Now remember in the parable, we immediately are divided, the sheep are on his right hand, and our judgment will be very different from that of the world, for they will be judged according to their deeds, found guilty of all their sins, and condemned to hell forever. It's very important that we all think about this judgment. The part of the beginning of the the fear of God, the wisdom is that we are going to give an answer to God. And it's going to be too late on the day when we stand before Christ. Way too late to say, well, I'm sorry. Uh, Forgive me. No, the books have been closed for that. And now the book of judgment is opened. And listen to me. Listen carefully. And you children, listen to me. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, regardless of how young you are, if you're to die, our Christ is to come, and you stand in the presence of Christ, and you're not trusting Him as your Savior, you will be eternally damned. That's why the Bible again and again says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to take hold of Christ. This is not a bleak time. This is a glorious and joyful time with the gospel going forth, coming forth today in your presence as well. And so be sure, every one of you, that you're trusting in Christ. But also be sure that we will give an answer, not in terms of any kind of damnation, but we will give an answer to God, and we're to live our lives then circumspectly. As I've said, you're to conduct your ministry circumspectly. If you're an office bearer in the church, you're to conduct your ministry circumspectly. As husbands and wives, we are to do our families with careful prudence in the sight of God, and we are to pursue all things for His honor and glory. We are to live consciously, to wake up in the morning. I'm in God's presence. During the day, I live in God's presence. Go to bed at night, I go to sleep in God's presence. Asleep at night, I am in God's presence. But it's not just to give an answer. It's also a great encouragement. But you notice that uh, the two names, God and Jesus Christ, are qualified. And so we are before God, he says, I charge in the presence of God who gives life to all things. We come here to the fact that God himself is the living God and as the living God he is the source of all life, he is the creator of all things. He gives life to all things, he gives life and breath to us and to all creatures. He sustains the life of all so that he is physically the giver of life to all things, but much more importantly He's the giver of life to his people. He's the source of this life, this eternal life that belongs to us in Christ Jesus. And we immediately are reminded now as we live our lives in the presence of God, we don't do so bereft of aid and strength and help. We're not on our own. No, the God in whose presence we live is the life-giving God. He's the sustaining God. He's the God who's begun this good work and is going to bring it to completion. He's going to keep us. He's going to cause that seed of eternal life that he's planted within us to grow and to prosper. What a glorious thing. And he comes back to this in the doxology at the end, but what a glorious thing to think that our God, in whose presence we live, is the giver of life to all things and to us, his sons and daughters. Now, the, the, the clause modifying the Savior is a bit unusual. What would this have to do with us? We live in the presence of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Well, obviously, you recognize the historical fact that Paul has here, and that's uh, our Savior was before Pilate, afterwards before the church, uh, eventually to be condemned by Pilate. But what does it mean that he he confessed a good confession? We well, you know this word confessed or testify. It's the same word in Greek that means martyred. And you could say that he testified unto his martyrdom. It's quite remarkable, and of course it's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, that as a, a sheep is silent before its shearers, so our Savior was dumb, so to speak. Because you know, if he had defended himself, he couldn't have been condemned. He had to be silent. But that was part of his good confession. Now he did tell Pilate that God alone is true and that God governs all things. But he answered Pilate in no way to get himself delivered. It was a good confession that led unto martyrdom. And that's in part why it was a good confession. So we're called now to contend for the faith. We're called to live life, like our brothers and sisters in many countries of the world, uh, under the peril of a sword, or great deprivation. And the temptation will be to fall away. But as we live in the presence of Christ, it's not only then as judge, but it's encourager. He has set an example for us. He has shown us what it means to, to bear a good confession, yes, even unto persecution, even unto martyrdom. And as, as we're told then, in the writer of the Hebrews, that he suffered in all respects as we have us, he's able to minister to us. He's been there. And it's nothing you'll be called on to give a testimony at work or uh, before school friends or one day before governors or judges or whatever. Not a thing you're called on that Christ has not endured. He's the trailblazer. He set the pattern. And, and the life-giving God then applies this to us. And so it's not at all a scary thing, is it, to live in the presence of God? Not, not when we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. You, you see, to live in His presence, this solemn obligation is... I'm living in the presence of the One who gives me life, sustains my life, who gives me a pattern, encourages me. Then, He said, "He'll never leave us, or forsake us." And so, it's a solemn, a solemn obligation, but a glorious one. Within the commandment itself, it's a summary commandment. Uh, that's the focus of this uh, solemn uh, charge or obligation, He said, He charges. Timothy, and through Timothy, us, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I call this a summary commandment because I think that's exactly, where at the end of the book, what Paul is doing. Of course, in the immediate context, he's given Timothy a a number of commandments to deal with the, the false teachers, to flee lust, to pursue godliness, to... Fight the good fight, but in the context of this book, he's dealt much with false teachers, the ordering of the church, the, the qualifications of ministers in the church, the worship of the church, and such. Remember, uh, on a number of occasions throughout the book, he has prefaced his or he's concluded his remarks with this: prescribe and teach these things. So, in chapter uh, chapter four. Verse 11, when he finishes talking about the good minister's discipline, prescribe and teach these things. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 7, dealing with widows. Prescribe these things as well, that they may be above reproach. Uh, Chapter 6, after he has dealt with uh, slaves and masters. Again, he says, teach and preach these principles. See, this is one of the reasons, And when we first started, many of you weren't here, most of you weren't here. Um, One of the reasons we know this, letter is for all of us, for the churches, because the very last words, I read it this way last week, grace be with you, is in the plural. So he's writing Timothy, but he's saying grace be with all of you, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Timothy has the role as we've already seen in two places, to model for the church, all of these things, but constantly he's to teach and preach this whole counsel of God, particularly it's revealed here in this book. So Timothy has this awesome responsibility to teach the people in Ephesus and then through Scripture, the Spirit is teaching us how to obey God. And this then is the summary commandment. Keep the commandment. And keep it how? Two qualifiers without stain and above reproach. Uh, In Peter's concluding remarks there in the section that we read, how we are to conduct ourselves uh, with respect to the coming of Christ. He says in verse 18, uh, no, he says that earlier, that we are to keep the commandment, but verse 14, look for these things, be diligent, looking for the coming of Christ, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, it's the same word, spotless, without stain, and blameless. Last week we considered James 1.27, the summary of true uh, religion. And and there again, we have this uh, concept. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is in this. Visit orphans and widows in the distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's the same word. So when, when we're told here to, to uh, keep this commandment without stain. He's saying that there be no sin involved in your obedience to God. Do not Be defiled by the world. Do not compromise with the world. Uh, Avoid uh, all of the stain that comes from the world uh, in your obedience. So it must be a a single-minded obedience that is shaped by the word of God. That's what he calls each one of us to do. And then with respect to the minister, it's interesting he says, and without reproach, that's the same word he uses back in chapter 3 when he talks about the qualification of an office bearer. We're to have a good reputation in the church and in the world. They put these two things together. The minister, the office bearers called on to obey God without sinning, without compromising. Uh, and he's to do so in a way that shows the world what it means. But every one of us has this responsibility. We hear way too little today about the importance of holiness in the life of believers. We're inundated with a cheap grace that winks at sin. And we need to take seriously to keep the commandment without stain. To guard ourselves. To cleanse ourselves from stain by regular and daily confession of our sins that we then might have that stain removed. We might walk with confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the summary commandment. Do all that Paul has commanded here in this book. We can say all that God commands in Scripture. to Do so in a consistent in a wholehearted way, to do so without sane reproach, but notice the goal, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He now adds that title, Lord. He's talked about Jesus Christ, our example, but now reminds us that this is Jehovah God, who is coming again as our anointed Savior. Now he puts a whole different perspective on it. It's a perspective of of which we read in. Yeah, we, we read in First Thessalonians, of which we sang in, in, uh, uh, for all the saints, this perspective that we're living our life with, with our next crit. understanding this isn't the end. No, it's what we refer to as an eschatological purpose or goal, that all that God commands Timothy, all that God commands you and me were to do with a view of the fact that Christ is perfecting his church. Christ is gathering his elect from the world. And all of this is going to come to a climax when he comes again to present to himself a bride that is stainless and blameless, without spot and blameless. And so he says we are to live our lives with this realization. You see, if you live your life with the realization that we're living in light of eternity, as we saw uh, previously, that eternal life has begun now, but we're moving toward this great goal, then the things that happen to us now become secondary, don't they? Now, the good things that tend to become idols, we get them in perspective. Yes, God has greatly blessed us and we thank Him for it, but there's more to come. Um, but the difficult things, the physical things, uh, the chronic diseases, the pain, uh, family pain, uh, broken relationships, uh, poverty. Loneliness, spiritual things, are our weakness, our besetting sins, our lack of holy affection You see, all of this, all of this becomes secondary. We realize, as we just sang, what we're moving toward in that return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything's fitting. There's not a wasted moment. Not a wasted thing in your life that does not fit into this grand and glorious scheme of God that will come in that great climax when there's a shout and the sound of a trumpet and Christ descends with the souls of the just made perfect and their bodies raised from the dead and the rest of us, even as we sing, are raised up to meet him in the sky golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes rest. Sweet is the calm of paradise blessed, but lo, there breaks a yet more glorious day. The saints triumphant rise in bright array. The king of glory passes on his way. You know, I, uh, I wrestle with this. Of course, we understand that for most of us, if not all of us, as all of our forefathers, this coming of Christ will be for us individually. It will be in our death. And at the end of the day, uh, prepare for one to prepare for the other. If you're ready for the return of Christ, you're ready to die. If you're ready to die, you're ready for the return of Christ. But death is just, remember, phase one. Our souls are glorified, but our bodies will remain in the grave until Christ returns. And constantly, the Spirit directs our attention to this glorious reality. God would have us to meditate, to think often uh, on this physical, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it might excite us, that it might encourage us, that we will keep our heads cricked, uh, our next craning, waiting, looking, longing uh, for that day. It's a great mystery. I expect Christ to have a number of glorious things take place in this world before he returns. But as we'll see more fully in a moment, uh, my time or our time is not his time. And We should always live with this expectancy and pray that he will give you a longing for the return of Christ, a longing to see the glory of Christ in heaven. You know, He says in his own prayer that that's, that's his pleasure. His pleasure is going to be that you and I see him in his glory. And that will take place fully and finally when he returns. Now, we'll see him when we die, but we will see him in the most glorious way, um, with eyes of this body when he returns for us. And so the summary command is, um, is so important for us, but it's got this encouragement, you see. It's, yes, it's with an eye on what he's doing now and is going to do then. Which brings us to this gracious encouragement. Uh, Paul can never do theology without doxology. That's the difference in Paul and a lot of theologians today. For Paul, Calvin copied him well. Uh, theology was never written in itself. It was always a mean to glorify and worship God. So what does he do? Is he's thinking about the second coming of Christ. He reminds us in verse 15 that he, God will bring that about at the proper time. But as soon as he thinks about the coming of Christ, And the sovereignty of God, when that's going to happen, he breaks forth into doxology. This doxology is for us a gracious encouragement. Now you see the link. I just pointed it out. Christ is coming. We don't know when, but we know it's going to be at the God-appointed best time of all. It's a time according to his wisdom. It's a time according to his sovereignty. And this is what gets Paul thinking now, doxologically. Remember, a doxology is an inscription of praise to God, normally in the third person, where certain attributes of God are attributed to him that lead to worship and honor, Concluded often with the amen, let it be. So we see in the first place with this doxology, this for us an encouragement, that as Paul thinks about the God-appointed time, he thinks on the sovereignty of God. And so it begins by saying he who is the blessed and only sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. The word sovereign here simply means a ruler. This says God is not just a ruler, God is the ruler. He is the king over all kings who have some rule. He's the lord over all lords who have some dominion. He's sovereign but notice the description of his sovereignty. In the first place, it's blessed. Now, in chapter one, don't have a place that the Bible uses this word blessed of God. This is not the normal word you find in the doxology. No, the word here in chapter one, verse 11, blessed is the word of God blessing us, of God heaping happiness on us. Why then does Paul use this of God when he speaks here of God's sovereignty? He's reminding us that God is a happy being. He's perfectly happy. He's altogether joyous. He is jubilant in his sovereignty. He's unfazed. He's not in any way worried. And he in no way in his own being could ever be sad. He's, He's the blessedness of blessing in himself. And it's because he's sovereign. You see, he couldn't be sovereign if he wasn't blessed sovereign. Because if he wasn't fully happy in himself, then there would be some defect in his sovereignty, some aspect of his plan that could go awry. But because he's absolutely sovereign, he's absolutely happy in all that he has ordained, in all that is going to come to pass. And then because he's absolutely happy and sovereign, he's the only sovereign. There's none other. Wicked rulers, Proud presidents can think that they have some sovereignty. Legislators can think that they can do as they wish with a country or with a people. No. You see, when it says that he is king of kings and lord of lords, what he's saying is that, yes, uh, there'll be these little people who will have uh, rule and dominion, but he says we read Habakkuk. Nebuchadnezzar. He was great. He knew it. Uh, And uh, the world lay before him as it did later under Alexander the Great, or, or, or before Caesar. And he, he took the world at his will. But what we see there in Habakkuk is that he was simply God's puppet. This was God chasing his people through this man who thought he was all-powerful. And that's, there's not a ruler who does anything. Who himself is not ruled by God. And at the end of the day, everything that that even wicked ruler has done has been ordained by God and directed by Him in such a way that God Himself is pure and spotless. The ruler is only accountable for his sins, but it's God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't you love the sovereignty of God? I wish we heard a lot more about the sovereignty of God in our churches and we thought about it in our lives. Because it's such a distinguishing aspect of, of the holy and triune God. He's sovereign. So I remember early on when we were here, there was a, a family at the First Baptist Church in Taylor's, and they were in an awful car accident. God ran across the interstate, hit them head on. And, and what was said at the funeral was that God did not intend for that to happen. What comfort is there in that? What comfort is there that, that a cancer cell or a stray bullet? or a drunk driver, or some persecuting tyrant could do something to us that was apart from God's will. There's no comfort there, is there? You're sick. You're terminally ill. You've lost a loved one. What do you know? Whatever my God ordains is right. That's what you know. He's sovereign. And he's sovereign in your salvation. For if he were not, you would have been remained dead in your sins. Glory, glory and sovereignty, and glory in the beauty of God, the blessed, sovereign God. We don't think enough about the happiness of God in himself. Now, he doesn't have parts like us, but there's something in God that exceeds all the joy that we can imagine. That's why it's called blessed. He wants us then to be happy and blessed, not doer, sour-faced uh, Christians, but people who are so full of the joy of the Lord that we're bubbling over and we're smiling and, and we're greeting people and we're manifesting. Yes, it's a, it's a veil of tears, it's a bittersweet joy. We'll mourn our sins and our sorrows, but God is the great comforter. Underlying all of our sorrows is this bedrock of sovereign joy. It comes from the Lord God. I just read a little brief biography about the great Presbyterian Thomas Peck. How that at his funeral, his wife and the author said, We've never seen this before. How she joined in the last hymn of praise. Because though she grieved, she joyed in this beautiful and glorious sovereign God. Do you glory in him? Oh, I trust that you do. So he's the sovereign. King of kings and Lord of lords. And then two attributes here are ascribed to him. He is the one who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Our God alone possesses immortality. He who is we saw, the giver of life to all things is the giver because he himself is life. That's why he's called the living God, the only true God. He is in of himself life. He is who he is. That's his name, Jehovah. He's independent, self-existent. He's the bubbling up of life. And he's the only one who possesses immortality. Now, he grants it to us as his image bearers, which for those outside of Christ, it's wretched. But for us who in Christ, this immortal life is our gift of God to live with him forevermore. So he is the source of life to us because he's the bubbling fountain of life. All life is in him, and it's good. But notice this relationship of life and light. So he is the only possessor of immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. David combines life and light in Psalm 36, verse 9, for with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we see light. You see, if if life is the origin of all things, light's necessary for the sustenance of all life. God, who is the giver of life, is the sustainer of life, but he himself, who is the essence of life, is the essence of light, and thus he says he, he dwells in unapproachable light. The the glorious sovereignty and beauty of God, we cannot gaze on it with the human eye. Just as you cannot look at the sun with a naked eye, it would blind you. If you were to be faced with the glorious light of God, it would blind you. What happened to the Saul of Tarsus when he saw something of the light of Jesus on the road to Damascus? He was blind. It would be like an atomic flash. It wouldn't just blind you, it would destroy you. This awesome, sovereign, holy, but altogether beautiful. It's unapproachable light, this unimaginable light. But see, light spreads beauty and joy. We can't look on the sun, but the sun makes us happy. And we can see uh, the dappled light through the leaves. We can feel the warmth of it on our face. We can see our flowers and our crops growing because of the light of the sun. How much more so this unapproachable light. But he didn't keep himself in the distance, did he? No. We're told that he became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory in the sun, who Hebrews says is the effulgence of the glory of God. And he says, I'm the light of the world. and Thus we walk in him, and we walk in his light. Now one day... We will have eyes to look upon that glory through the Mediator and behold the triune God in this light. But now he comes to us in his word, which is light, by the Spirit who is the giver of illumination and light. And we can see him. But don't ever forget, he is the holy, unapproachable God if you remain in your sin. And then uh, Paul continues to speak of him that uh, what, what is owed to him, and that is honor and eternal dominion. Honor is reverence. We worship this immortal God who dwells in light unapproachable because he is the beautiful one. He's the sovereign one. He's the one who's given us life. And as Paul beholds him as the giver of life, he says that all worship and honor belongs to him, to him alone, with eternal dominion. You see how he completes the circle. He started with uh, a sovereignty, king of kings and lord of lords. He concludes with a dominion, a reign that is eternal because he is eternal. So you see that it's a doxology. It's, it's where the truth of God brings us. But how encouraging it is for you to understand this God who is with you, this Christ who gave you the example of a good testimony, this God who is the giver of all life, this is this God that Paul praises here that is your God, and everything he says about him is yours in Christ Jesus. You see now why I put it this way, that with an eye on the return of Christ and the encouragement of the true God, we solemnly are commanded to obey God carefully in all things. Frodo's gifts... Aragon's gifts enable them to accomplish the purpose as it was almost impossible. Our gifts, our gifts are so much more. And they don't just enable us to accomplish the purpose because he's in us accomplishing the purpose. You need not fear. You need not fear. If you look at the ministry as it lay before you, you men that are preparing, if you look at the ministry that we have, we look at ourselves as a little congregation here uh, in this idyllic setting surrounded by uh, thousands of people, um, we need not fear because God is for us. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? If we seek to honor him, we seek to do his will, we seek to keep the commandment. In him is everything, not just a few things, not just some gifts, but everything necessary To do His will. And and this is for you, my friends, in the Christian life. We don't know what God will call any of us to in the days that follow. Suffering, pain, deprivation, persecution, whatever it might be, loneliness. But what we know is that God's with us. And so we we can press on hard. Hard after the virtues. Hard after serving and glorifying Him because of who He is and what He is in our lives in Christ Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cacheville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.